Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Jonathan Dunbar here, Sibylline's Director for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. I'm joined today by Dr. Gyal Yu, our Lead Asia-Pacific Analyst, and John Breen, our Lead Global Risks Analyst. Today, we're going to be looking at a not-too-insignificant development amid our current global geopolitical landscape, namely the recent deployment of the UK's new aircraft carrier, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, to the Indo-Pacific as the lead of a naval strike group, essentially flying the flag for global Britain, according to Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. The carrier will be armed with the latest fifth-generation multi-role F-35B jets of both the Royal Air Force and the United States Marine Corps, along with other rotary wing aircraft and a detachment of Royal Marines. It will visit 40 countries, including India, Singapore, Japan, and South Korea, as part of its 28-week lengthy mission. The strike group will also conduct joint exercises with the U.S. and many other allies along the journey. John, can I ask, what is the main intention of the U.K. government for sending such a high-profile naval deployment to the Indo-Pacific? You know, and secondly, is London seeking to establish or even project a more significant permanent presence in that region? Hi, JD. Thanks for having me. Uh, so to touch on the first part of your question, the deployment of the carrier strike group into the Indo-Pacific is the latest development amid London's broader re-engagement with the region since about 2010 under Conservative governments. And this re-engagement is predicated on the UK's realisation that global economic activity is shifting east, while East Asia is experiencing greater geopolitical competition between the US and China. British efforts to re-engage the Indo-Pacific diplomatically, military and economically have maintained considerable momentum. And this momentum accelerated following the referendum on Britain's membership to the European Union as re-engagement then fell under the Conservative Party's Global Britain agenda. From a security and defence perspective, London's engagement or re-engagement is partially based on the UK's history as an island nation, heavily dependent on maritime trade for its economic prosperity and ensuring that maritime trade routes remain open and free from interference amid rising tensions in the South China Sea and other non-traditional security threats in Southeast Asia is vital to the UK's interests, particularly in relation to strategic choke points for maritime trade, whether this is the Straits of Hormoz or the Straits of Malacca in Southeast Asia. Prior to the carrier strike group deployment, a major shift in British maritime operations occurred in 2018 when the Royal Navy maintained a near continuous naval presence in Southeast Asia and the wider Indo-Pacific. Naval activities throughout 2018 included enforcing UN sanctions against North Korea, conducting combined naval exercises with Australia, Japan, South Korea and the United States, and conducting a US-style freedom of navigation operation around the disputed Paracel Islands in the South China Sea, which expressed the UK's legal concerns over China's declared baselines around those islands. And then in 2019, the Royal Navy also participated in a trilateral anti-submarine warfare drill with the US and Japan. Outside of these maritime operations, though, the Royal Navy has supported efforts to enhance 
the Vietnam Coast Guard's ability to monitor and police Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. Defence engagement has also included the British Army conducting jungle warfare exercises with Thailand, while British forces Brunei and the Royal Brunei Armed Forces established the Regional, uh, Regional Jungle Warfare Symposium, which aims to develop Brunei as a centre for excellence in jungle warfare and to establish a platform for collaboration between participating countries, which include Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, and the United States, to name but a few. And in terms of its more permanent presence in the region, though, it is important to remember that the UK is a founding member of the Five Power Defence Arrangements, or FPDA, uh, alongside Malaysia, Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, while the FPDA was established to hedge against the potential resurgence of a threatening Indonesia after President Sukarno's campaign of confrontation with Malaysia, it has since morphed into a regional security institution among its members with annual exercises to address contemporary security concerns, including terrorism, piracy and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And the UK's participation in these exercises has not always remained consistent in terms of assets deployed, but the Carrier Strike Group will participate in the FPDA's Bersama Lima exercise later this year. It's also worth noting that outside of the FPDA, the UK maintains a residual military presence in Southeast Asia through its Gurkha garrison and jungle warfare training facilities in Brunei, which I mentioned already. And there is also the British Defence Singapore Support Unit, which provides the Royal Navy with access to the Sembawang Naval Wharves and supplies fuel to foreign warships on request, uh, most notably the US 7th Fleet. And the UK has also established a regional counterterrorism unit based in Kuala Lumpur, reports to the British Defence Staff Southeast Asia and Singapore, while the FCO and British Police are institutional partners of the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation, which was established to combat transnational crime and terrorism. British Defence Staff Southeast Asia and Singapore also acts as a focal point for coordinating engagement with British defence attaches in the region and supporting regional partners through security sector reforms, conflict prevention and stabilisation initiatives. So while the deployment of the Carrier Strike Group is a significant development, it does fall under a wider strategy of continuing re-engagement with the Indo-Pacific region to secure British economic interests while also supporting the interests of governments in the region. Thank you for your thoughts on that, John. So I think the next big question, and this one goes to you, Hugo, how is China going to react to this uptick in military activity you know, within the South China Sea and the region more generally. And do you think there are any security risks you know, emerging from the uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth's deployment? Hi, thanks, JD. Um, that's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, Beijing will be angry and are likely to uh, send out diplomatic protests against this deployment. There's such a, a high-profile Anguanzhou uh, naval deployment of the uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth. So. As we saw that uh, when HMS Albion sailed to the South China Sea in 2018, as uh, John mentioned, to conduct freedom of navigation operations, Beijing accused Britain for being proactive in, uh, in a such a contentious area. So yes, so we are expecting protests. But beyond that, I think on the, uh, on, on the ground level in the South China Sea, we may well see an uh, increase of um, activities 
by Chinese naval forces, you know, uh, essentially doing exactly the same uh, power projecting military posturing uh, activities in, in the South China Sea. And there might be incidents, and uh, indeed we have uh, seen uh, between China and U.S. navies uh, in the past few weeks of uh, ships closely uh, shattering potentially the uh, QE uh, carrier strike groups. And, and that, that could potentially uh, you know, raise the tensions on the tactical level, but we don't foresee uh, escalation beyond that because both sides understand the uh, potential stake involved in a, a, if you know, um, sort of a skirmish occurred. But at the same time, uh, I think there are uh, protocols in place on, on you know, um, hostile ships meeting at the high seas. On a more sort of strategic level, I think it's also worth noting that, that you know, China has also bolstered, been, been bolstering its military power and presence in the, in the region, not least to mention the latest addition of the country's first amphibious associate, the Type 075, to a southern fleet and really sort of strengthening is you know the the fleet that is responsible for the South China Sea and 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 so yeah so we are going to see quite a busy summer of grandstanding and muscle flexing potentially you know between China and a US and allies. Thank you for your thoughts on that question, Hugo. John, moving back to you, you you hinted it in, um, in answering the first question. But, you know, this is a, a significant naval deployment undertaken by, you know, the UK government. It's, it's, it's a lengthy mission, 28 weeks out there or, or heading out there and back. You know, does this, does this signal that this is the new focus for the UK government? You know, the Indo-Pacific region, is that, where, is that where the UK government's turning towards? And moving beyond that, if so, are we likely to see the Royal Navy trying to establish a more permanent and a larger presence in the region beyond what it already has? I think it does signal that the Indo-Pacific will remain a cornerstone of the UK's defence strategy going forward. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the deployment of the carrier strike group is the latest uh, in a series of, kind of UK efforts to re-engage with the Indo-Pacific not only to support countries in terms of their security and defense interests, but also in terms of ensuring the economic prosperity of the United Kingdom post-Brexit. Whether the Royal Navy maintains a permanent presence in the region in terms of naval assets past the carrier strike group deployment remains to be seen. While Britain managed to maintain a near continuous presence in the Indo-Pacific in 2018, there is some tension between claims concerning the Royal Navy's return to the region and it's fo the focus of its naval cooperation with Western Paris and Japan in the first instance. It is worth bearing in mind that in addition to China, some governments in Southeast Asia also view uh, Britain's return to the region as a military power with some concern. Former Malaysian Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad has expressly voiced his uh, concerns over the presence of foreign warships, such as Britain's in the South China Sea, and there have also been questions in several Southeast Asian capitals about the timing, purpose and sustainability of uh, recent British defence re-engagement. Notably, uh, as I mentioned, the UK hasn't maintained a continuous year-round presence since 2018, 
And this accentuates all of these questions. And there are also some concerns that Britain will openly take sides with the United States against China, which could inflame uh, geopolitical tensions further. So it's largely unclear, though, whether the UK will continue to maintain a permanent presence. There have been preliminary discussions amongst uh, some decision makers in the British government about whether the UK could establish a more forward deployed presence in Singapore, similar to Bahrain and Oman. But there is nothing on the cards yet of anything happening with any certainty in the future. Part of the problem with the British re-engagement in the Indo-Pacific as well is kind of the lack of an overarching strategy across Whitehall in terms of what this re-engagement should set out to achieve. And I think it's quite important to remember that while external powers such as the United States and France have laid out their interests and objectives for the Indo-Pacific region with respective Indo-Pacific strategies, Britain has only vaguely reaffirmed itself to be a reliable partner in certain parts of the region, particularly in Southeast Asia. So I think whether we can tell if there's going to be a permanent presence or not is an open question. But I think that would also be predicated on uh, Britain actually strengthening its strategic communications and what London hopes the Royal Navy will achieve in the Indo-Pacific region in the coming years. John, thank you for your insights on that question. Hugo, let me go back to you on this. So what are your thoughts on the outlook for the South China Sea and any geopolitical flashpoints we need to be looking out for, you know, particularly given the ramping up of military activity in the area as we move forward into the next few months? Yes, Jonathan, we think South China Sea, as you mentioned, with the increase of military assets assembled in the area and, and, you know, and the overlapping and rather complicated uh, territorial disputes affecting uh, multiple states, including China and other Southeast Asian countries, this area will remain a major geopolitical hotspot for the remainder of 2021. And especially, uh, you know, we, we don't foresee the winding down of um, US-led uh, military presence in the region. I think it's worth qualifying to say that, you know, Beijing is perhaps less worried about the, the UK uh, strike group uh, and the Royal Navy alone, but it's more sort of compared to its concern about the, the strengths or growing strengths of the US alliance uh, in, uh, in the region uh, and under the sort of a directive of the US President Joe Biden. So that's, that will be uh, always a more sort of a priority uh, concern for the policymakers in Beijing. Uh, as we know, the whole China's defense strategy is involved into basically escape from this uh, first island chain, which is um, a chain of strategic choke points that separated China's peripheral waters and the vast and, and de uh, deep, uh, you know, a Pacific, uh, and that these these choke points are mostly controlled by the U.S. and its allies. So its navy has always, for many many decades, and tried to breaking it. And 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 China feel now 
with the advancement in, in ministry technology and resources that, that it can make the step to, uh, uh, to become a, a blue water Navy, so to speak. So yes, South China Sea, but we will also add beyond that, there is also uh, East China Sea and the area uh, surrounding Taiwan, uh, which again, being a very sort of a key tension area of contention in the China and US superpower rivalry. So there are a few areas of concern, um, not just the South China Sea. And in uh, looking ahead, as I uh, alluded earlier, uh, we don't see an uh, escalation of um, you know, potential uh, armed conflicts. Such scenario still remains rather remote, uh, but we do see potential sort of a, a flag up of uh, very sort of localized tensions uh, in the form of potential naval standoff, or as I mentioned, host, uh, hostile troops coming to close proximity to one another. Um, and causing some, you know, very you know, short and low uh, intensity tensions in, in the area affected. Um, but overall, uh, I think this is more a strategic, uh, a long-term strategic rivalry as opposed to uh, a short-term um, search of, um, you know, uh, activities. Thank you, Hugo. Appreciate your, uh, your, your points on that. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. A very interesting topic. I'm sure you'll all agree. And thank you for those listening. Um, as ever, if you want to know more about this podcast or anything discussed on it, please do get in touch at info at As usual on our weekly podcast, we like to give the listeners a look forward as to what's coming down the line over the next seven days. For that, I'm joined today by Phil Riding, our lead Middle East and Africa analyst. Phil, Tell us, what's on the radar over the next week? Thanks, JD. Well, I think the big ticket item uh, of the, the week ahead is uh, the end of Ramadan uh, and the subsequent festival of um, Eid al-Fitr, which will be celebrated across the Muslim world, obviously with particular focus on the Middle East and Africa, but also South and Southeast Asia. So just as a rough guide, public holidays in the UAE, for example, last from the 11th to the 14th. Uh, of May, uh, with the end of Ramadan itself likely to fall on on the 12th. So in addition to obviously the disruption of of, um, widespread public holidays in in those uh, Muslim majority countries, um, there's also potential implications for risks around terrorism, for example. In the past, certain Islamist groups have considered uh, launching attacks um, in and around Ramadan and the festival of Eid itself um, due to its religious significance. But I think obviously some of that threat will be mitigated this year as a result of um, ongoing COVID restrictions. Although having said that, the COVID restrictions themselves have the potential to incur something of a backlash if um, people feel that they are being obstructed from conducting the the usual activities that associate with with Eid, um, namely, you know, visiting family and friends and and generally having large public gatherings. So, um, yeah, business can generally expect a a fairly substantial degree of of disruption for the next week uh, in Muslim-majority countries worldwide. Looking more specifically, um, in Myanmar on the 10th of May, Aung San Suu Kyi is due in court. And as I'm sure many of our listeners will gather, that's likely to prompt further protests from opponents of uh, the military coup that happened earlier this year. And as a consequence, there could potentially be violence in in major cities uh, in and around Myanmar. Latterly, 
opposition uh, activists have sought to avoid the worst of the, the violence from um, security forces by organising protests on short notice with um, very with relatively little coordination. So obviously disruption has the tendency to, to be somewhat sporadic. Um, but yeah, certainly um, a flashpoint to note uh, on the 10th. Uh, and then looking back towards Europe in Georgia on the 15th of May, there's also planned opposition protests in Tbilisi, largely under the, the umbrella of the United National Movement which is effectively seeking to um, navigate a, a political crisis which the EU had hoped that an agreement that it, it, it had brokered would assist in um, developing a, a certain amount of calm after several months of uncertainty. But obviously, uh, the protests that are planned for, for next week could potentially undermine that. So uh, yeah, it's still something of a dynamic situation there. And that's really it. There's some constitutional assembly elections in Chile also on the 15th of May that will shape longer term discussions over the country's constitutional settlement. But uh, other than that, I think it's it's Ramadan and Eid, which will be occupying many minds worldwide over the course of the next week. Thank you for that forecast, Phil. To those of you listening, thank you again for joining us today. As ever, should you want to know more, again, about the podcast itself and what's happening with you know, in the Indo-Pacific or on the forecast that Phil's just highlighted for us, please do get in touch at info at Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>